Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. The Dodd-Frank Act requires the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to provide Congress with a report on the use of arbitration agreements in disputes between consumers and providers of consumer financial products. The CFPB is empowered to promulgate regulations designed to protect consumers from agreements the CFPB deems harmful. In March of 2015, the CFPB released its final arbitration report to Congress. The tone and conclusion suggest that the CFPB intends to aggressively regulate arbitration agreements. Not surprising to those who have followed the CFPB's regulatory mindset. The CFPB could even implement an outright ban on mandatory arbitration clauses. A new study from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University provides an overview and critique of the CFPB's report. The study analyzes the report using primarily evidence supplied by the report itself. The CFPB's findings, in fact, show that arbitration is relatively fair and successful at resolving a range of disputes between consumers and providers of consumer financial products, and that the regulatory effects of limiting the use of arbitration may even leave consumers worse off. With us today to discuss is one of the co-authors of the study, Jason Scott Johnston. Professor Johnston joined the University of Virginia Law School faculty in 2010 from the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. His scholarship focuses on the law and economics of environmental and consumer regulation. He's published dozens of articles in law journals such as the Yale Law Journal and in peer-reviewed economics journals such as the Journal of Law, Economics, and Organization. He served on the board of directors of the American Law and Economics Association, on the National Science Foundation's Law and Social Science Grant Review Panel, and on the board of the Searle Civil Justice Institute. After earning his PhD in economics and a JD from the University of Michigan, Jason clerked for Judge Gil Merritt on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He's been awarded fellowships at Yale Law School, the University of Southern California School of Law, the American Academy in Berlin, and the Property and Environment Research Center. So welcome, Jason, to ABI Podcasts. Thanks for having me, Sam. So generally, let's start with how arbitration works in consumer contracts today. Where, where do you see them? Uh, many consumers see them in the sort of fine print of their agreements that they have with financial institutions. How do they work, and, and what's a typical outcome? Well, arbitration is included, uh, mandatory arbitration in many consumer contracts. Um, the CFPB study looked at certain kinds of products, financial products, but they also looked at uh, wireless uh, phone contracts, and it is true that um, many contracts, but not all, and that's an important finding, require mandatory arbitration. Uh, AAA arbitration, uh, that's the American Arbitration Association, uh, those are the arbitration studied by the CFPB, and that is the arbitration association that is used uh, in virtually all consumer arbitration, uh, uh, consumer arbitrations. Uh, is very easy for consumers. It's it's just very easy for them to uh, fill out a form, file a AAA arbitration claim. There is no discovery as there is in civil litigation. Um, in many arbitrations, the um, arbitration is decided 
simply through written submissions made by the consumer. For example, they could send in a cell phone bill showing that, hey, here's a charge on the cell phone bill that I never agreed to pay or I never really incurred. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there may be submissions by the company as well, and then the arbitrator decides it. Consumers don't pay any part of the arbitration fee now before the uh, uh, AAA, the American Arbitration Association. Very rarely is there even a hearing or in the arbitration. Sometimes there may be a telephone conference. And the arbitrations are resolved quite quickly. Uh, and the CFPB study does present the most systematic data we yet have on the outcomes that consumers achieve in the set of arbitrations studied by the CFPB. And the outcomes are really quite good. Um, it is true that uh, consumers recovered, that is, they got an actual positive outcome from the arbitrator, that is to say, similar to a judgment uh, in uh, court, about 20% uh, of the time. And another 37% of the time, the CFPB, looking through files provided to them by the um, AAA, found that in addition to the 20% of the time when the consumers won before uh, the arbitrator, they 37% of the time the consumers got a, either what the CFPB was sure was a settlement or what the CFPB said was a likely settlement. Mm -hmm. So that's 57% of the time consumers in these AAA arbitrations are probably either getting a settlement or um, an actual judgment from the arbitrator. And that's, uh, you know, it's cheap, right. it's easy, and it's pretty effective. Right. And without legal expenses associated with litigation, obviously. Well, that's the other thing. Uh, there's two parts to that. Uh, people who have been critics of arbitration had one of the things they complained about or worried about was whether people uh, represented by uh, consumer mm -hmm. claimants in AAA arbitration have legal representation. It turns out that the vast majority of the time they do mm -hmm. um, and it varies with the, whether you're talking about a credit card or a checking account or right. a payday loan. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the vast majority of the time overall, consumers do have legal representation. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that the CFPB's data revealed is consumers don't have to have a lawyer to do well in AAA arbitration. Mm -hmm. They got outcomes that were uh, very good. Even unrepresented consumers in AAA arbitration got very good outcomes. So unlike federal court where really the alternatives are a class action or an individual action. And of course, there are essentially no pro se, or that is to say self-represented individual litigants in federal consumer actions. Uh, unlike federal court, where the consumer is either part of a giant class action or has to get an attorney, um, consumers do really well in AAA arbitration, even without uh, having a lawyer. And I think that's an important feature. I mean, you know, arbitration's cheap yeah. fact, and I think it's an important point to stress, that it's set up to allow consumers to proceed successfully even without an attorney. All right. Well, that's interesting, at least to me, in the sense that notwithstanding some of this data, which is in the report itself, it seems like there's a almost an article of faith among consumer advocates that arbitration... Uh, routinely uh, or disproportionately favors the company, especially in in the financial services area. So I'm wondering, you know, is that is that true, and 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 is that uh, article of faith supported 
by the data or or by the CFPB study? Well, I think the answer is no. The answer to your first question, why do so many people think that, is precisely because of the way you put the question. It's an article of faith. It's not data-based. Uh, when you look at the actual mm-hmm. data, um, as I just said, consumers achieve pretty good outcomes. They achieve, um, in the majority of the time, they either likely settle or get a substantive judgment from the arbitrator. And again, the thing that the CFPB doesn't talk about and that we don't know is we don't know about you know the merits of these arbitrations. It could be the case that the 40% or so of arbitrations that consumers don't win, they shouldn't win because they don't really have a valid claim. Right. Um, right. And you know, there's no way that the critics of arbitration could know any more than the CFPB about what's going on in these actual individual arbitration files. And the second point, sometimes it is true that critics of arbitration will say, well, look at this, and the CFPB data confirms that there are not too many small-dollar arbitrations, arbitrations where the consumer is asking for $1,000 or less. But uh, work that I'm doing right now, looking at uh, class action filings in the Northern District of Illinois, consumer class action filings, suggests that there aren't too many class action filings in which it's less than $1,000 that the consumer is trying to recover. And in fact, uh, overall, it looks like there are more thousand, you know, small consumer arbitrations in all consumer arbitrations before the AAA than if you just look at the subset that the CFPB did, that is the ones involving consumer financial products. And moreover, it's really, um, we have to do further research to figure out why there aren't quite so many small dollar arbitrations. But clearly one reason is, and I think this is very, and this is increasingly important as you look through the past few years, uh, is because some companies have got arbitration clauses which guarantee a consumer a pretty large amount of money for sure. Let me give you the the two examples that I think are really prominent. AT&T, if AT&T makes an offer to the consumer and the arbitrator ends up giving the consumer more than AT&T offered, the consumer gets $10,000. So Mm -hmm. there's very little reason, and you see this in the data, because I'm working with the AAA data too, uh, people who arbitrate against trip, uh, uh, AT&T typically do not ask for less than $10,000 because AT&T has almost guaranteed them that. Mm-hmm. And Verizon doesn't have quite the same thing. It's a little bit different. And that's, importantly, that's regardless of the size of the charge or fee that the consumer contests. Exactly. It's almost like a liquidated damages. It Precisely. It's like liquidated damages, and Verizon has pretty much the same system uh, where the consumer is guaranteed... Um, if, if the arbitrator gives the consumer more than Verizon's last offer, the consumer gets $5,000. Mm-hmm. And that's just guaranteed. So essentially, right. Verizon and AT&T, with clauses like that, from an economic point of view, they have committed themselves right. to engage in certain kinds of behavior with consumers, fair offers. And it also affects the data. And you can see this in the AAA data. When people, you know, when you arbitrate against a company that's already said they're going to give you at least 10000 or $5,000, well, that's what you that's what you ask for. Right. I guess uh, you know, the, I still get back to the what I said originally. I don't really know how, the, this belief uh the cynicism about arbitration is really not based so much on data as it is just a kind of um I don't know what it's based on really. <laughs> um right, suspicion. 
right? That uh, arbitrators. Well, yeah, I'll let me be more actually a little elaborate on that. If people who are cynical arbitration are wildly optimistic about class action lawsuits. Right. Those two usually go together. Talk about the people this. who don't like arbitration think class action is way better than the data right. I'm collecting suggests that it is. Right, right. That that clearly uh, comes through. That there's a uh, throughout a comparison of class action settlements with arbitration awards. So talk a little bit about that um, uh, that method of comparison. Is it relevant? Well, uh, the CFPB first in its preliminary report just had a highly selective qualitative description of uh, eight class action settlements and some of the monstrously huge class Mm -hmm. actions. Uh, There's a gigantic multi-district consolidated class action involving alleged um, uh, an algorithm that caused people to incur overdraft fees that they shouldn't have incurred. Mm -hmm. That's one, for example, that the CFPB talked about. In their final report, they got much more systematic data. They tried to go through and they looked at the PACER federal courts filing database and tried to find uh, every uh, consumer class action settlement for their selected types of products, basically for a three-year period. And then they reported on what they found about class action settlements. They found things that are kind of that are quite, not kind of, but quite clearly inconsistent with what people had previously thought. The CFPB reported, for example, that claims rate, that is the fraction of a class of people that actually get paid anything in a class settlement, the CFPB reported claims rates, you know, as high as 20% uh, on an unweighted basis. They also reported that attorney's fees were... um, actually much lower as a fraction of uh, the total um, in class settlements than many people had previously discovered in, in admittedly not quite as systematic research. Previously, people had thought, well, attorney's fees might recover really a lot compared to what the class gets. And the CFPB said, no, only about really 17%, 20% in that area. Okay. Um, well, that's almost certainly... Um, that that data doesn't overcome the problem of overrepresenting some just huge class action settlements. As the CFPB notes, the biggest class actions involving millions of class members, such as this uh, overdraft fee, right. class, consolidated class action litigation, those, you know, it is true. In those, the attorney's fees as a fraction of the total class payout are a little lower. And uh, sometimes a big fraction of the class members do actually get a check or a credit to their account. But those are not representative of the vast, vast majority of class action settlements, at least based on data that I'm gathering uh, from the Northern District of Illinois. Those are very unrepresentative. For example, in Telephone Consumer Protection Act cases, at least in my sample, and these are all Telephone Consumer Protection Act cases, not just those against financial institutions, it looks like the claims rate, the fraction of the class that actually gets paid, is much more like 5%. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the CFPB has got some data on class action settlements. Uh, it's better data, but it doesn't, um, you know, they report these aggregate numbers. They'll divide up all the money paid to consumers and all the money paid in attorney's fees, and they divide one by the other to figure out what the attorney's fee rate is. When you look at particular types of cases, 
you will see astronomical attorney's fee ratios in some types of cases. And I think that's important for public policy purposes. But it's concealed by the data of the CFPB reports because they report things on this aggregate basis. Right. Um, you know, it's swamped by these monster big class action settlements, um, such as the overdraft litigation, where, you know, if you've got a $90 million or $100 million class payout, then even a pretty big, you know, even if attorney's fees are $25 million, there's still a relatively low fraction. So it's, it's uh, the, the data they present on class actions uh, tends to, I mean, it's useful, although I do want to say this, it's, its usefulness is limited, and I do want to make this point, because the CFPB does not have anywhere you can go and find its class action settlement data. Mm -hmm. You can't associate a case and a case number in a particular district with what the CFPB coded right. as the class settlement and the attorney's fees in that case. Uh, the CFPB has said both by statute and regulation that it's treating all of this data that's the basis for its report as confidential. Well, for for furthering research and furthering knowledge in this you area. You've got to be able to replicate it. Yeah, we can't replicate it. We don't know, you know, you don't know what it is. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this. The report is important, um, uh, long awaited, certainly, right in uh, Dodd-Frank's uh, charter uh, to the agency. Uh, arbitration was prominently listed, so we all knew that someday um, they'd get around to uh, focusing our, on arbitration. So now that the report's been issued, what comes next? Is this a, a regulation uh, that can be implemented um, by the agency itself? Uh, could they even ban arbitration in, in some cases? Uh, is there any role for Congress in any of this? Congress, of course, has traditionally favored arbitration over litigation. Um, what, what, what comes next? Well, we know um, uh, from Director Cordray's remarks of earlier this summer that the CFPB is now entering the next stage, which is to consider uh, whether and how it might regulate arbitration. I am hopeful right now, at least, that we could have some input into the CFPB's continuing look at arbitration and um, urge them uh, to, to do a little more work, basically, gather a little bit more data, and also think a little more systematically about what's going on here before they decide to start regulating arbitration. And one thing that's very important for them to look at is for our critique of the CFPB's study. We had uh, made available to us um, data from a mid-sized bank in Texas on how they resolve complaints that consumers have about different fees and charges. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that data showed that, you know, in 68% of the cases, at least in 2014, in which consumer complained about a fee or a charge, the bank granted a refund. Mm -hmm. And there's a simple reason. These are, you know, mostly small right. dollar disputes. Somebody will complain about a, oh, a charge on a, um, not uh, you know, credit card charge or some kind of a charge on a dormant uh, checking account. And, um, there's a reason why businesses do this, and it's, it's because, as the CFPB's own data showed, the vast majority of consumers don't know anything about arbitration. But 60% of them roughly said, if a company didn't do what this bank does, which is refund charges that consumers complain about, 
then they'd take their business right. elsewhere. Right. The market. In other <laughs> words, this is a market mechanism. Right. I mean, everything's about customer value and retaining valuable customers. And there are these market incentives already for, for companies to resolve, especially financial institutions, to resolve so many of these small-dollar consumer claims. And that existing market mechanism is strongly supported by the kind of arbitration clauses we talked about earlier, you know, the AT&T Verizon clauses. Those are commitment mechanisms. They're committing themselves to pay way, way more than a consumer is, is complaining about, right. you know, if they don't resolve it internally. Right. So until the CFPB systematically looks at the interaction of ex post dispute resolution mechanisms, by which I mean arbitration versus the class action, and a company's incentive to efficiently resolve consumer complaints internally without any kind of uh, ex post dispute at all, whether it's brought in arbitration or class action, until the CFPB looks at that, they really should not do anything with arbitration. That is the single most important thing they need to look at. Now, there's other things that would be nice if they could have, uh, and I'll say something on the CFPB's behalf as somebody who's also trying to study arbitration. It would be nice to know more about the facts in, our, in the uh, cases brought in arbitration, and it would be really nice to know something about the settlements. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's very difficult to get the American Arbitration Association, because of their confidentiality right. agreements, to give even the CFPB access to that data. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody gets access to some data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are some things that are just difficult to study with respect to arbitration. But the, the, the issue I just um, highlighted, the interaction of ex post dispute resolution mechanisms and the choice in particular between arbitration and class actions, and the incentive of companies to resolve small dollar complaints internally until the CFPB does a much uh, more thorough study of that, they shouldn't even think about regulating, substantively regulating arbitration. After all, the AAA itself already has a code for consumer arbitrations, a, a really quite very detailed and very fair uh, set of processes for consumer arbitrations. So that's the CFPB side. Does Congress, I think is, it would be very useful for Congress to hold hearings and you know, where it kind of really evaluated what you can say and can't say on the basis of what the CFPB has reported. Um, and is there need for congressional action? Uh, legislation, say, telling the CFPB to continue their study or, or in some way prohibiting the CFPB from regulating? Uh, I don't know about that. I, my hope is, look, that the CFPB, uh, they they are supposed to be an evidence-based regulatory agency. Right. And as an evidence-based regulatory agency, I would hope that they would view this as just the first right. um, step in a long process of trying to learn more right. uh, about arbitration rather than jumping to regulate it. Right. right. Well, we'll see, obviously. Uh, certainly the agency is um, has a lot of power uh, based on the way they are structured, which is something Congress obviously... Uh, at least uh, wants to look at uh, possibly uh, changing uh, down the road, but we'll see um, what. Well, that does seem to me something that you know there are people who think there may be constitutional issues with right. the, the with the the CFPB's 
the way it is funded and its its structure. Right. So, you know, maybe that's something. I think that's something clearly Congress should look right. at. Yeah. But that's maybe a more general issue. Right. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, very interesting uh, discussion, Jason. Thank you very much for uh, your take on the report and for the working paper. Uh, we'll uh, link to it uh, on our website. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sam. This was really fun. That's our podcast for today. Uh, as always, we thank our listeners. You can listen or download more than 160 podcasts on topics related to bankruptcy, insolvency, credit, and debt at our website, abi.org. Just go to the newsroom and click on podcasts. Until next time, this is Sam Giordano saying good day. Yeah.